soul, R&B, Caribbean, gospel, hip-hop, or house music. And if you love podcasting and exclusive interviews, if you love urban culture and urban music, then you will really love the Urban Cafe channel. You can find it here on HD2 if you have an HD2 radio, or you can go to WMNF.org and download our mobile app so that you can listen to it all the time. You are tuned to WMNF Radio 88.5 FM. This is Community Speaks. I'm your host, Patro Mabili, and this is part of the additional hour of public affairs and opportunity to talk to you, the community. And today, we're going to talk about the politics of incarceration, the cost, the high HIV rate, prison gerrymandering, and the struggle to re-enter society after incarceration. The public will have another opportunity to discuss these issues on December the 12th, this time in St. Petersburg, in the community re-entry experience. And so we're going to have a serious cogent discussion about all of those issues because I'm a little bit surprised at some of the statistics we are seeing when it comes around incarceration in Florida, that issue. And, uh, you know, people are not going to stay locked up forever unless they were, you know, part of a sentencing that locks them up for life and the rest of their natural life. But that's not most people's reality. Most people will come home. So I want to hear from you today. Hopefully we're going to hear from some people who are going to be a part of the community re-entry experience that's coming on December the 12th. We're hoping to hear from them today here on Community Speaks. But Florida's choice to criminalize and their fail, they, the whole idea of failure to appear may be hurting public safety. So that's one issue that I want to delve deeply into and uh, as I said, the cost of incarceration, uh, older people especially, that's incredibly high. And um, there's some other issues around these issues of incarceration. Uh, talking about incarcerated journalists, the idea, the, the difficulty for them to tell their story and even risky, how risky it is, how the prison industrial complex is so tied to people who are in the ruling class, the politicians who's, who need constantly to raise money for their uh, offices, to run for their offices, are constantly uh, cobbling together money from interests such as these, the prison interests, especially the private prisons in this country and in this state. And so this is how these politicians continue to engage in the politics of fear. They constantly engage in the politics of, of crime and so that they can, especially on the right, raise the uh, fear factor, fear level in their voters and continue to vote. But solving the problems of incarcerated, especially the underlying problems, those political issues are never dealt with on the right. Uh, and when the left are so-called moderates, so-called left or the moderates try to deal with this issue. Uh, you met with all kinds of 
misinformation, just as it's constantly done during, especially during campaigns on the right to continue to criminalize uh, people and to continue to promote and promulgate fear in people in their voters. They're talking about the unsafe streets, uh, but at the same time, making it much easier for people to walk around with concealed weapons, carry guns, and doing very little to stop uh, mass shootings, gun violence in this country. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of contradictions around this issue, usually rooted in the idea of those who are in power need to continue to uh, make money, raise money from these circles, such as the prison industrial complex. So we're going to talk about all of those issues, why it's difficult to talk about these issues uh, publicly, especially if you're a journalist inside of a prison. Your story is very rarely told if you're just part of the media trying to visit a prison uh, in this state. You're very unlikely to get the true picture because as they usher you through, they're only going to show you what they want you to see, not the reality. Uh, but Florida is one of the 20 states that... Uh, is got one of the highest prison HIV rates. And also I was a little surprised to learn that given the high cost of prison, but also the politicalization of prison, it may, may be or may not be surprising to know that Florida has an incarceration rate that is 795 per 100,000 people. So this is including prisons, jails, immigration detention, and juvenile justice facilities, meaning that Florida locks up a higher percentage of its people than any democracy on earth. So with that in mind, we're going to turn to someone who's going to be involved in the reentry experience, uh, the community reentry experience, and talk about the Issues, the underlying issues around incarceration. We're going to talk to Danielle from the Department of Criminology, I do believe, is joining us on the telephone to get the show started today. And uh, let's go ahead and welcome Danielle to Community Speaks from the Department of Criminology. Thank you, Danielle, for joining. Can you hear me? Introduction. Uh, yes. As you mentioned, my name is Danielle Thomas, and I am a doctoral student in the Department of Criminology at the University of South Florida. And you are hitting the nail on the head with some of the issues that you were describing inside of prisons. I also am, I run the Lifers program at Sumter Correctional Institution, which I have been doing since the end of 2019, as well as teaching undergraduate criminology classes at the university. This issue inside prisons is, is definitely crucial, um, especially the medical issues such as HIV that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, there's a lot of issues that um, disperse for those that have a life sentence as the main point of incarceration is punishment. While they are in incarcerated, that is not the point of being punished. The punishment was being served and sentenced to incarceration. Therefore, reentry starts the moment someone is incarcerated. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times the Department of Corrections does not realize that. And instead, for those that have an aggressive, severe, violent offense, such as murder, specifically those for sexual offenses, and even those that have life sentences, they're 
disbarred from participating in educational and vocational programs. So they don't have much to do while they're incarcerated to better themselves. Right. And we all know the cliche saying that idols' hands are the devil's workshop. Yep. And that's what a lot of these individuals experience while they're incarcerated due to, like I said, the severity of their offense. Therefore, they just remain in their dormitory doing basically nothing or anything that they can get their hands involved in, which a lot of times ends up being delinquent behavior. And that's when we see an increase of the, de the delinquency going on inside the prisons because one individual can teach a whole dormitory more delinquent behavior. Wow. So a lot of times what I try to do is I not only run the lifers program like I mentioned, but I actually actually evaluate the programs within the Department of Corrections. So Lowell Correctional Institution, the women's facility, has just now put a lifers program in. So I'll be overseeing this. There's also the Correctional Transition Program at Everglades Institution, which is, um, as many of you may know, the only Florida Commission on Offender Review certified program. So this program is where men are able to be paroled from this institution, whereas many other programs, they do not actually have the opportunity to be paroled directly from this institution. So I'm trying to expand the opportunity for release camps. I do a lot of work in this agency, and my research focuses on these programs, providing evidence-based research to correctional staff and wardens to see how we can improve the operations inside of the prisons. And then I follow these individuals once they get to the gate. So I do a lot of reentry work. I consider myself a reentry expert. Um, I work on the barriers to reentry, and as we know, there's many. But what I specialize in specifically with reentry is finding individuals employment. So a lot of my work, I work with employers that do hire um, felons and see how we can improve that opportunity for other felons who are going to be released. And most recently, I'll be working with Patrick Mahoney, the head of DOC programs, with the SSCI programs, which are the short sentence programs for those that are first-time offenders with a sentence of less than two years. Okay. And this will be at Hernando Polk and the Florida Women's Reception Center. So I'm really, really excited to share what we have going on at the most recent coming summit, December 12th at noon. This will be in St. Pete. And if you need the address, please just ask. We've been advertising this on social media. We're really looking forward to sharing what we have going on and the insights to reentry. And we do have our moderator, uh, Rochelle, who is a part of ABC News. So we hope that we can share this information and get it out to all criminal justice stakeholders. And so we can come together for the common good, because a lot of times I always preach that a lot of agencies, nonprofit organizations, they're doing a lot of great work, but they're isolated. We need to put our heads together, because just as raising a family Criminal justice reentry truly does take a village. And once we realize and acknowledge that, I think that we will do better and have more successful reentry efforts. And I'm just proud to be a part of this group, and I appreciate you all for having me. Well, certainly, and that's Danielle Thomas. And, yeah, go ahead and give us the address for the event, the Community Reentry Experience. Awesome. The address is 2333. 34th Street, St. Petersburg, Florida, 
3411. I'll repeat that once more. It's 2333 34th Street, St. Petersburg, Florida, 33711. And I can see here that's uh, 34th Street South. Yes. So you you talked about the the focus on employment after reentry. Of course, everybody in the community would uh, recognize that that is an important component. But at the same time, the politics. So how do how how will how do you navigate? What are you hearing politically from people that make your job harder? Are because there's so many. Uh, there's so many politicians who like to promote fear and the idea that people have to be fearful of those reentering society. And, and that yeah. politics includes the politics of, of jobs, but also the kind of, of politics you may face when you're trying to see what's happening inside the prison. Exactly. And uh, you pretty much explained that very well. Um, by by alluding to the politics both outside in the community and in prison. And that's something that, as you again alluded to, is a very difficult time that I have navigating as an evidence-based researcher, as a lot of times just the title of being a researcher gives me a frowned-upon look upon entering into the institutions as they are cautious of what they allow me to see inside the institutions, what I'm able to do, the work I'm able to provide to the incarcerated population, because a lot of times they don't know my agenda, and quite frankly, they're scared of what will get out into the community. Um, However, I'm not there to shame what's going on in the prison system. I am there to simply try to improve what they already have going um, through evidence-based research and see if there is any additional effort that the correctional staff at these institutions would be interested in having, such as doctoral students such as myself providing additional services to the population. And then the politics on in the community is a whole different um, it's a whole different ball game. That's a whole different fight that I have to go through because a lot of politicians, again, we might we all know this are against criminal justice reform. Um, With what we have going on in our government as well, it also makes these barriers, I would not even say 10 times harder, but 100 times harder. And that's something I struggle with because you can lead a horse to to water, but you can't make them drink. And that's pretty much how I feel, presenting a lot of the evidence-based research showing um, how program participation can not only lead to a decrease in the disciplinary reports and the increase the safety, but it also improves the society um, successful efforts upon reentry for these individuals. And it's not only about securing employment, but it's most importantly about securing a house because and securing a, a place to live, a shelter, because nobody is looking for a job when they don't have a place to live. Right. And what's very, very, very disheartening about the criminal justice system is that they're actually able to release an individual as homeless. Yes, you heard that wow. correctly. They are able to release an individual without a home or shelter address. <laughs> mm. This literally increases the, recidiv- the recidivism rate twofold right. because if somebody doesn't have a place to live, they are going to do any 
things by the means necessary to survive. They will steal for food. They have to do whatever they can get their hands on to live. And I think that's something that we should all be able to realize through common sense. And the reentry efforts at the prison have to do more. Um, there's a Compass 100 program that every returning uh, incarcerated individual has to take. And quite frankly, this is a program where education and through the Department of Corrections is able to hand out a Compass 100 booklet and tell these individuals that they have to have this booklet complete upon reentry. These individuals are not getting classes that they need. And sometimes, to be completely honest, these individuals pawn off this Compass 100 book to another inmate to get it completed because they do not feel like putting the effort in to do that. And if they're not willing to put in the effort to go to classes for reentry, do you think they're going to be willing to put in the effort in society to be successful? Hmm. Yeah, so that's a lot of where my arguments come from, is that it stems from the prison. It stems from these institutions. Right. I'll say it again. I'll say it a thousand times. Reentry starts the moment someone is incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Until the whole prison system and until society realizes that our recidivism rate will continue to be about two-thirds at three years post-release, which is what we're seeing right now through the Department of Corrections. There's a 67% recidivism rate after somebody has been released for three years. This is meaning they're setting up incarceration to be a perpetual cycle for right. individuals. And it's not only the incarcerated person that's being incarcerated, it impacts the entire family. So it's not just the 2.3 million that are incarcerated in the United States. Times that by six because that's how many family members and loved ones are also being impacted. They're also impacted by those high costs of telephone calls, trying to keep in touch with their loved ones in prison in you know, it just goes, it's, it's a spiral that goes on and on and on. Uh, Danielle, I want to uh, I want to bring in Anthony Williams, I believe, is joining us on the telephone to uh, engage in this discussion with us. But you raised some very interesting points, especially when it comes to the politics. And it raises, uh, in my mind, this whole terminology I hadn't really put together before, and that was prison gerrymandering. So it sounds like if you're if you're counting voters, if you're counting inmates of prisons as voters of your district, then there is no incentive to to get rid of that population or lessen that population. So yeah, let's see if we can get Anthony to join this discussion. And Danielle is still with us, and you can also join us by calling in eight one three two three nine nine six six three. That's eight one three two three nine nine six six three to join the discussion. Here on Community Speaks, and the community is going to have an opportunity to talk about these issues of incarceration and reentry into society, the community reentry experience. And I believe Thomas Williams, who's part of, uh, is going to be part of the panel. He's a business owner and is, is a returning citizen. Anthony, are you on the phone? Can you hear me? Absolutely. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Oh, I was actually listening to the commentary and agreeing with her a thousand percent uh and the, the the programs within the prison facilities uh do absolutely nothing to help you come back into this society uh, the the most important thing that i i've seen is 
they don't have, they don't allow access to any type of computer skills. So if you're asking someone to come back into society and hey, you need to get a job. How does one get a job right now? You literally will be on ZipRecruiter or Monster.com filling out hundreds of applications to get one response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, that's one. <clears throat> that's one of the biggest things that I've seen. And um, I also have been thinking about th- the mental health area of returning citizens because it's also a battle within them um, to actually make it out here because it's hard. It- it's very hard. Right. And, and your self-esteem has to be taking a hit when everybody around you is, 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 is not expecting much from you or any better from you. Mm, that is true. And uh, you're going to be on the panel, Anthony? Yeah, I will be on the panel on the 12th. Um, I do have a lot of pertinent talking points, and I'm actually looking forward to it because I actually right now in the position that I am right now, I am a... Um, ACA navigator with the Pinellas County Urban League. And even, um, what, 12 years after my incarceration, I'm still facing charges for me to get um, certified to be a navigator. I'm still going through background check issues right now to this day. Um, They asking me to explain charges from 1993 (laughs) and 1994. Uh, the last time I was charged with anything was 2001. So basically, we're dealing with charges from over 20 years ago, and with and to this day, right now at this moment, I'm I'm, I'm currently facing scrutinism from these charges. Yeah. So you know, you talking about charges from 30 years ago? So there's a there's really. Uh, a prejudice in society where you're constantly being prejudged. You're constantly being uh, questioned about something that happened 30 years ago. Absolutely. And the the thing about it is um, I, it, it actually was triggering to me because the, the, the process that I have to go through, they actually asked me to explain what happened um, to come up to my incarceration and mm-hmm. You know, just to put that on paper was kind of like weird to me. Yeah. And, and, and it was just, it kind of, really, like I said, it was very triggering. And it, it's more of a, the, the, I, I, I've generally, like, my mind has wrapped around this something, and, and this is something that I, I really would like to take the legislation because if there's a statute of limitation on most crimes, like, except murder, yeah. So if there's a statute of limitations, after a person uh, completes their sentence and released into society, after that statute of limitation has went by post their incarceration, should they even be considered as a convicted felon? Right. And in, in, in beyond that, should corporations be allowed to, to continue to ask that of you? Especially if it has nothing to do with the job and... You know, and they say on application, though, this doesn't really have any bearing on whether or not you get selected for the job. But, you know, clearly, this is the fact that they asked the question. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And there's a double barrier, actually, because it's not just being a convicted felon. I have no violence. I have no violent history. And if you have a violent felony, that's a double barrier. 
Right, right. And, you know, but yeah, one can make the, one can demarcate between violent and nonviolent felons. Uh, Danielle, what do you say about that in terms of corporations being allowed to continue to do this to people 30 years after the fact and it's a nonviolent offense? I love, can you all hear me? Yes. I love that Anthony just raised this issue because it's exactly aligns with the research that I'm doing. In fact, I just got back from Philadelphia presenting one of my research papers and I'm obsessed with the title, so I'm going to share it with you all. <laughs> it's about Does Time Heal All? Evaluating the Impact on the Employability of Those with a Criminal Record. So what I'm doing in this paper is breaking down how many years it's been since one's been released on the impact of employers. So in the literature, we refer to this as time until redemption. So Anthony just mentioned that he's been released for 13 years. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, Anthony. And yeah. basically with this time, the time into redemption research is showing that after one has remained crime-free for a period of seven to 10 years, they have a equal likelihood of committing another crime as an individual that has never had a criminal record. Therefore, they have an equal level of risk which means, therefore, they should be put on an equal level playing field. And what he alludes to and what has been told to me and I've seen firsthand in the experience working with this population is that is not quite true. Even if it's been 7, 10 years plus, these employers are still having this stigma, this stigma attached to one with a criminal record, and it perceives this person as dangerous or untrustworthy and this fear of litigation and and losing employer other employees and customers all for hiring someone with a record and the research does counteract this and basically shows that those with a record can actually be the most hard-working loyal employees but the issue that we're really facing right now in society for those coming out of prison with a record is that they're not even getting a chance at an interview like Anthony mm -hmm. said, he's submitted a thousand applications before, and these individuals just are able to submit a resume, and there's a clear gap in one's employment history, no matter how long they've been incarcerated, that whether it's a year, 10 years, 20 years, it shows a significant gap in one's resume, and we all know the box, the box on applications, ban the box movement. This, have you been convicted in the last seven years? Yes, no, please explain. Mm -hmm. That's my whole research agenda and what I'm going to be attacking because I'm not sure if you all know, but 37 states have banned the box, meaning they've removed that, have you been convicted in the last seven years? Ooh. And what I'm trying to do in the state of Florida is remove that box so it at least gives individuals a chance at an interview because... The research shows that most employers base their willingness to hire someone off of soft skills. And soft skills are things like I mentioned, like their, someone's work ethic, their motivation, their trustworthiness. And they're not able to present these soft skills through just a resume. So they're never being looked at. As soon as somebody sees that that box has been checked, yes, right. their applications get thrown in the dump. 
So these individuals are never even getting a first shot. And what I'm trying to tackle right now is I'm not justifying all crimes, but what I am justifying is that everybody needs an equal playing field when it comes to employment. And if if society is unhappy about the current job shortages and the borough of labor statistics shows that there's 8.6 million unfilled jobs, then why don't we start considering those with a felon? Right, right. Anthony, I love it. Anthony, yeah, go chime in because, you know, there's a there's a chance that, you know, this is going to help those who are still trying to navigate all of this. Well, I, like what, what she's saying is, is amazing. And the things about it is as a person, as an individual, you have to prepare yourself before you uh, leave prison. And it, it has to come with a lot of self-motivation. Yeah. yeah, I always tell people that I I, I I went to prison. I had a clear understanding that no one would pay me to play spades or dominoes. So I educated myself. Um, mm-hmm. When I came home, the first uh, job that I can say that I got where it was more of a career was at Trade Winds Resort. And everything that I put on that application was skills that I had from in prison. Oh. I... Um, I I got my uh, certificate in pest control from Purdue University. I had I did floor care because I worked at the warden's office, and I, I did floor care. And I was also food and beverage because at another facility I worked in the kitchen. I literally cooked for 1,500 inmates breakfast and lunch. Wow. So this got me – I put these things on my application – got me a position as a food and beverage manager at Trade Winds. And this was, I, I, I want to say, what, maybe 2014 or 15. And and, then that, and at that time, I was making about 60000 a year, which was pretty good for, for someone that just recently came on. But it yeah. was about the preparation and preparing yourself. It's, um, a lot of these guys... Um, you know, I, I, I like to say when guys come home, I like to let reality hit them first. Like, re- reality has to set in. And that reality is nobody's going to come with no bags of money. Um, 90% of these plans and dreams and ambitions that you had um, may not come true. And you're going to have to start building a foundation if you have any desire for those dreams and plans do to come true. Right. And that's basically what it was. Trade wins was my foundation to become a business owner. Yeah. But yeah, and that's because you took the lemons and made lemonade because in prison you learned these skills, but in prison, how much were they paying you? Because apparently in Florida prison, that's pretty much slave wages of 20 cents an hour for your work. Oh, well, it's, yes. uh, well, it gets worse than that. Um, I actually, I was in federal prison. So I was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, um, working in the Unicor where they do all the sewing. We were actually making military uniforms, making 41 cents an hour. Wow. Um, it's, it's an absolute slave labor. Um, I, most of my time I, I did administrative work when I came home. That's, that's kind of what prepared me for business. Cause as I say, I worked in, the warden's office. So I worked inside of the business office with the HR department and the business office. 
So it's kind of a preparation for me. And it's all about positioning. It, it's 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 a different aspect when you're in the federal prison. And I still was getting paid pennies on the hour. Right. But but it it was it's a mind state because when you come home, just like what what she was saying, it, it right now the the wage just went up to maybe fifteen dollars an hour. But when I came home, it was any job over twelve dollars an hour. You got to check that box, just like mm. you said. They want to look into your background. And the most important thing with a, a returning citizen, a male, right. the most important thing with a male is helping this person return to the head of their household. Yeah. <laughs> and they can't do that with a $12 an hour or $15 an hour wage. Um, the programs that we have, they come home. Um, even when I come home, I'm at the Federal Highway House in Tampa. I got a job cooking at Gyro's. That was enough. That was enough. Hey, that's good for us. Mm-hmm. You're you meet all of our you met all of our our qualifications. You you know that that's you're doing great, but that's nothing. That's not going to sustain you in your household. So it's it's we have to get them a job. Then we have to build them into getting a career. So uh-huh. it's a lot of work that we have to look forward to. That's reentry work. That's after incarceration. Mm-hmm. And Danielle in Florida, is that true? Twenty cents an hour because we're, we're Anthony. You were where making forty one cents. Well, I was at well, see, and 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 that was a high paying job. Federal. Mm-hmm. I was at a, I was at a federal prison in Fort Dix, New Jersey, right. and that was considered a high paying job. You have um, people that are in federal prison from other countries that take care of their families with that three four hundred dollars a month that they're making right. in the factories. Yeah. So that's that's what yeah, the in, in Florida, from. in Florida, pretty much consistent to those rates. Um, nothing mm-hmm. above a dollar, more than a dollar per hour for any type of work inside the prison. Whether you're working in pride industry, horticulture, um, vocational services, in the warden's office, yeah, every everything is uh, severely underpaid. Like you said, basically slave wages, um, and they. They run the institution. The the inmates run the institution. They mm-hmm. do all the work for the institution. Absolutely. And they do they do a great job because these institutions maintain their longevity in the building structure for a pretty long period of time. And these inmates do the plumbing, they do the engineering, they do the lawn, they do it all, they do the roofing. I've seen this all firsthand at multiple prisons. The inmates truly do it all. Um, and mm. so this saves the institutions thousands and yeah. thousands, if not millions of dollars for year after year that these inmates continue to do the work for um, a very, very low, sad amount of money. And he hit, he really does hit the nail on the head about you you have to be motivated. You, you as an inmate serving in the Department of Corrections, you have to be mo- motivated to participate in programs if you are eligible to participate in the program, because you can truly do nothing in there and return to society as the same person you were that you went in. Yeah, in the same so environment. It's about yeah. that intrinsic motivation, taking things upon yourself and fighting for who you are while you're incarcerated, fighting to get the next best job that you can get your hands on, fighting to get the experience that you want to get the experience, because... Despite if you have a life sentence, you have to have hope and be continue to gain and acquire skills while you're incarcerated 
as the gentleman said, to be profitable on the outside, to be marketable on the outside and show what you have done and the skills you have because a lot of times, unfortunately, most of these men and women went in as juveniles. Mm. So imagine your employment history and record when you're a juvenile. I mean, seriously, if they even had one job or two, they didn't have serious jobs. So you come out and you have basically no skills to offer unless you took it upon yourself to acquire these skills while you're incarcerated, and that's all you have to sell yourself is things that you've done in prison. But people have been, as Anthony is, successful with the skills they've acquired in prison. But just imagine, just imagine all the inmates that don't have the access even when they have the motivation. That's who I fight for. And I want to add something because within the federal prison, like the industries, that 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 the inmates are working in is it, amazing. Like uh, like I, we were sewing. Like I can literally sew. I can make jackets yeah. and clothing and with all type of different. I can work three different types of sewing machines. Right. You have inmates working and making fiber optics. Um, you have inmates working making uh, Humvees, heavy artillery uh, coverings for the for the uh, tanks. These yeah. inmates. Um, um, when I was working during a pandemic with the street team, I had a guy came home that trains dogs. Hmm. He, he was working as a dog. That, that was their job at the prison was to train dogs. But as a convicted felon, once you come home, guess what? They won't hire you in any of these fields. See. And you're already working on the job training in these fields. And exactly. And already have the necessary certificates but they just won't give you a chance because either that box was checked yes or they've ran a background check. Because mm-hmm. statistics show that 94% of employers continue to run background checks even in manual agencies. So even in, even in jobs that don't have a career aspect to them, employers are still running a background check. Wow. And, and like the gentleman said so well, it doesn't even matter if it was a violent offense or not. There is still that stigma attached to somebody that has a record, mm. and it forbids them from getting a chance. When sometimes employers that have taken a chance on them, they have the most remarkable, best things to say about these individuals. And it's allowing that experience and giving more individuals a chance so they can set, set the stage for the next person coming out. If these employers have a positive experience with hiring someone with a record, they may be willing to open the doors for a second person. And right. that's how we're going to start increasing the opportunity for these individuals to get back on their feet. And like he said, some of them are the man of their household. They're paying all the bills, but when you're giving them a job that pays $15 an hour, be real and ask yourself, would you be able to afford a family off that pay? Right. So why are you doing it to somebody else after they've already paid their debt to society by serving their time? All right, that's Danielle Thomas, and we're also joined on the phone by Anthony Williams. And we've got your telephone calls. If you want to call in, 813-239-9663. We're going to see if we can uh, include somebody in on this conversation. Uh, hopefully, we can, uh, but let's see if we can. Uh, let's see. If we lose you, Anthony, call us back, okay? All right, no problem. All right, go ahead, caller.
Unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though I can add any more calls to this conversation. Uh, but you can write me, write me DJ at WMNF.org. You can write DJ at WMNF.org if you want to add a comment to this conversation. And it looks like uh, there are quite a few comments that have come in. I'm going to read a couple of them to you, uh, which pretty much is in agreement with what has been said. One emailer has written these resources to get back into the workforce, uh, talking about a, uh, her son's friend. And he's just been released from prison. He's 38 years old. He needs help with resume, job interviews, etc. And uh, interested, this person, this emailer is interested in, in attending the reentry experience. Uh, so they want the address again. Uh, we'll be certainly happy to oblige you on that. Uh, what is it, uh, Danielle? The address for the reentry event, which again will be on December 12th at 12 o'clock noon in St. Pete at the Center for Health Equity. The address is 2333 34th Street South, St. Petersburg, Florida. Three three seven one one. I'll repeat that once more. The address for the upcoming event, December twelfth, is two three 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 thirty fourth Street South, St. Petersburg, Florida three three seven one one. Yeah, thank we you. We look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, thank you, Danielle and uh, Lynn. That's the address, thirty fourth Street South in St. Pete. Uh, another emailer has written. Danielle and Anthony, uh, why would prison employees want released inmates to succeed? They want them to return. It's called job security. It's similar to the fact that it is not in your doctor's best interest to cure you at all. The way is all the way is some uh, Ann Landers used to write years ago in her her column. Uh, so I guess that's a sort of a cynical view, as we were alluding to earlier, and that gets to the politics, the prison gerrymandering that gets to private prisons who can't make money unless the prisons are full. Well, they, they I can uh, respond to that. I, I actually, they don't. They don't. They don't want to offer the services. So even when you come when these guys get outside to the uh, to look for services, we just had the caller before say, "A uh, 38 year old man he needs help doing a a, a, a a resume interviewing, learning how to interview." So what they do is they put programs in our community, and then they'll put people in charge of these programs that have not experienced this, have not mm-hmm. took the time to research like Danielle, so they have absolutely. No clue as how to even really help these men. Um, a lot of money is budgeted back to our communities uh, for reentry programs. This is the money is there, but they're standing on the same principles. They won't hire the convicted felons to help run these programs. Yeah, and so so yeah, it, it's they, they don't. It is job security, and it comes with a. A, a falsehood of yeah, this 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 is we have this program and these programs, and, mm-hmm. I, and I don't want to call anybody out, but the programs that we have are, aren't giving people true skills. They mm-hmm. aren't giving you skills. Um, 
tiny home program. No contractor is going to hire you from going to build tiny homes to working on real homes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just that's just the truth. I'm a contractor. Yeah. I'm not building tiny homes. I'm not going to hire you. So you, you, it's programs in place that I, the intentions may be great, but the functionality and the actual output is not what's really, right. really, really needed for people that's re-entering. If this man came home and he's 38 years old, um, I don't know if he's on probation or he has anything continuing. Some of the first people he should have been meeting with in the first week that he got out should have been actually helping him learn how to do a resume, giving him two or three resumes mm-hmm. and actually showing him how to go online and put these resumes in a, into and apply for jobs. It should have been done in the first two or three weeks of him coming home. And in fact, Anthony, I want to jump in and even argue that last statement because a lot of what I say and argue about for what these programs should be doing, if anything at all, is having them prepared before they're released. Mm -hmm. These individuals have had secured IDs, birth certificates, and resumes prior to getting to that gate and being released. They should not. After serving however long they've served, they should not be released from the Department of Corrections without these necessities. These are basic needs that need to be met upon release. They shouldn't have to wait two to three weeks to secure a resume on the outside. If we have these people like myself coming into the institutions and doing these programs, then the staff at these institutions need to take them serious and allow us to utilize our resources to the full ability and these prepare these individuals prior to release. So I've been a real big advocate on that and a real big advocate for the flow buses now coming into the jails and prisons, which what I just said, they secure one's IDs and birth certificates prior to release. I agree. Yeah. I agree 100%. How even even to the resume, like that, what you said is so important because when you're in prison, you're just going to have a little bit more time to work on these things than right. you're going to be here. Um, exactly. And I agree with it. Like, if these these things should be in place if possible. And I've seen what they're doing in prisons with technology. So they can scale down the technology to at least give those that can uh, comprehend basic computer skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because the point you made earlier... You tell an individual that just returned to society to find a job, how you find jobs now is just what you mentioned, online, Indeed, Monster, all these websites. But a person who doesn't know how to work a computer and much less may not have affordability to have a computer, then how do you expect them to find a job? So you're exactly right. Absolutely. Well, uh, it's uh, Danielle and Anthony joining us here on Community Speaks. And just one last point that I'd like to ask you to about before we get out. And that is the, well, one emailer has written to remind me that Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, they help felons. Uh, and uh, not sure if that's before the fact or after the fact. Uh, but, you know, Florida Rights Restoration brings to mind the whole idea of ret- of giving returning citizens their voting rights. And, Anthony, have you 
Have you gotten your voting rights restored uh, or not? Absolutely. 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 That was um, actually uh, Councilman Muhammad and um, and Jabbar Edmonds were leading that um, program in Pinellas County. And I was one of the first people that they came through to. And I absolutely got my voting rights back. That's that's kind of like was that's kind of was my big issue with the thing that I'm going through now. It's you're asking me like literally I'm being asked to get certified copies of the disposition of charges and, and true and correct copies, and all of this should be uh, negated by the fact that I actually got my voting rights back. She didn't even have to deal with this. Yeah. But it seems like Danielle, that's the that's the point of what the the powers that be, especially this governor, has responded in to the referendum to restore people's voting rights uh, after incarceration. Is that the burden is on the incarcerated, the ex-con, to uh, fill out all of the paperwork, which nobody is helping them with beforehand? Mm, I see the issue. Well, unfortunately, I can't say I am surprised. <laughs> right. And, but the idea of keeping making it harder, of course, the, uh, the Republicans have been trying to make it hard for all of us to vote. <laughs> but they certainly must fear this prison population, this ex-incarcerated population who could get out and vote and have an, a real impact on the criminal justice system. Well, I mean, just the attack on that in the political realm shows you the power um, of that felons actually voting. Um, another uh, initiative that was when when the FRCC um, did their initiative to get felons to vote, and what a lot of people don't know is um, even this, in this belt, Orlando, Tampa, Pinellas County, when the votes, uh, even when there was a big election, the the, the presidential election, when the votes are fully counted in these counties, uh, somebody's getting ready to walk across the stage. Mm-hmm. And pretty much whatever county within the last, I think, four, three elections, whatever Pinellas County turned, that was the president. Mm. Um, a big part of uh, the, the sitting president we have now was because this was one of the first times that Pinellas turned blue. And that was because of the large amount of convicted felons that got their rights back and that actually hit the polls. Oh, okay. This is why it's being attacked by mm-hmm. the governor and the other side because they see they that if we can block that, we're, we can we can control Florida. Yeah. And it's not to say that people people vote their interests or how they want to vote, but they know that 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 that, that convicted felon population. If they can decrease that, that gradings, that makes their chances and other people's chances of winning their districts or whatever they're they're trying to get and and, and win the election. Right. Yeah. Any any population that is going to have any impact on voting ultimately potentially their power is is going to be militated against on that part on their part. So I think that we that's gonna be an issue that we're going to have to continue to fight, and that is getting people their voting rights restored without the extra uh, steps that the, the governor has tried to put on people and, and even arrested people. 
<laughs> in the Absolutely. last election. People got a, you know, got a surprise right in, in their own, own yards getting arrested. So just trying to yeah, vote. Yeah, a lot of which, which were told that they were okay to vote and right. then punished for afterwards. Right. So, you know, we have to we have to make certain we got to put a stop to that. Uh, another emailer has written most people vote for who they're told to vote for, not who they want to vote for. They choose which media outlets they're going to believe and do whatever they're told. Uh, that's not necessarily just for inmates. That's all that seems like to be everybody right now, at least on the right, uh, listening to the uh, they're going to their silo. Of Fox News and getting yeah. a lot of disinformation because that's a problem. And, you know, like I said, the politics of fear where crime is constantly, you know, thrown in your face, but no solutions uh, and no nothing to, to deal with talking about helping the quality of life for those who are getting caught up in the system. And if you don't do that, as Danielle has alluded to earlier, people are going to in the interest of survival, commit other crimes and end up back in the system. So, you know, I know someone who personally, when it's cold outside and he's homeless, would go and throw a missile through a window just to go to jail and get out of the cold. And uh, we can't have people feeling like they have to continue to do things like that to survive in this country. Exactly. And we have to also provide um, people economic opportunity. Um, another thing that I see, um, and this is what a lot of people are, they they don't have um, inept skills. Maybe I'm, you know, I, I had a advantage on people. Um, I had a big advantage. I'm like, uh, pest control was a college yeah. course. I was taking college courses in, in prison. But I realize some people can't even read past yeah. right words that are in prison. So, people so we need, have to, yeah, help. we have to make them a, a, a avenue where they can go back and work with their hands and learn how to do things, also, and just be all around, make an all around effort. Uh, black people are not monolithic, and convicted felons the same are not monolithic. We yeah. all are different, and we all have different needs. Well, thank you, Anthony Williams, for sharing your story with us here on Community Speaks today. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, guys. And Danielle Thomas, thank you for calling in and sharing us, uh, sharing with us your expertise and your research. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And if there's any other questions left unanswered, I'm happy to answer by email. All right. Great. Which is? D M Thomas at USF.edu. Oh, okay. D M Thomas at ed uh, at usf.edu.edu. All right. Thank you so much for joining me here on Community Speaks.